Good morning. Well, thank you, Scott, for that kind introduction. Friends, it's a joy uh, to be with all of you this morning. I want to thank you for uh, your warm hospitality and generosity that you've shown me and my family during our stay here. We're so grateful for you. We're grateful for you, for your uh, witness in this city, and especially the, the partnership that we have in the gospel. Back home at Grace Church, we regularly remember you in our prayers, and so it's, it's wonderful to be here and to, and to see you, to worship with you, uh, to get to know Joey and uh, your elders, and even many of you. Thank you for having us in your homes. For your, thank you for your love and your care. It certainly increased our thanksgiving uh, to the Lord. The Lord is truly merciful to all of us in Jesus Christ. And among many things, it is the knowledge of His mercy that ought to fuel our worship in every aspect of our Christian lives. And so to think more about that, I want to invite you this morning to turn with me in your copy of the Scriptures uh, to the Old Testament book of Jonah. I'll be preaching from the ESV, and we'll look at Jonah chapter 1. Now, the story of Jonah is probably one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. But unfortunately, when people think of that story, all that they can think about is that big fish that swallowed Jonah. But the story of Jonah is not about the big fish. It's not even mainly about Jonah. If you read the book carefully, you'll find that unlike the other prophets, Jonah doesn't say much. There are no great oracles delivered to the people of Israel. Instead, the Holy Spirit through the writer seems to be describing what happened to Jonah. You know, the story of Jonah is not mainly about the big fish or the big prophet. It's about Jonah's big God. What we're given here is a theology through a historical account. In other words, this is what actually happened in history, and this is what we can learn from, about God from that history. The book of Jonah teaches us about God's sovereign and scandalous mercy. His sovereign and scandalous mercy. It is a severe mercy, one that humbles and saves and disciplined sinners so that we might be transformed into instruments of mercy for his glorious purposes. That's the message of Jonah. Let's now look to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we were once children of wrath, running away from you and deserving of your judgment. But you saved us because of your great mercy. You have saved us not apart from judgment, but through the judgment that fell on your Son. And so, Lord, we ask that you would now open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Show us the glory of our Savior, that we might be transformed into his likeness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. One of the world's greatest boxers, Joe Lewis, some of you might remember him. He was reigning heavyweight champ from 1934 to 51, nicknamed the Brown Bomber. Uh, Lewis was once asked in 1941 what his strategy would be against the new contender, Billy Kahn, who was at that time both lighter and much faster than him. It was a great question because while Lewis was known for his devastating punches, Kahn was young and quick. He could hit and then run. So when asked how he would fare against the new kid who had both the weight and the speed advantage, Lewis famously replied, well, he can run, but he can't hide. Now, when you read the book of Jonah, it becomes evident that although Jonah thinks that he can run away and escape God's commission, God will not allow him to have his own way. He can run, but he can't hide. And so in the story, we see God extending his mercy to Jonah in surprising ways in order to teach us, you and me, something about himself. The story of Jonah is full of surprising twists and ironies, but it all begins 
with God's word being given to his prophet. And in this chapter, we'll see two rather uh, interesting and unexpected responses to God's word. First, uh, we will see Jonah's response, and then we will get to see the response of the Gentile sailors. And so if you like points, those are the points of the sermon this morning. Jonah's response to God's word, and two, the response of the Gentile sailors. But first, let's consider Jonah's response. Let's begin with verse 1. Look at verses 1 to 2 in your Bibles. I'm reading from the ESV. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now here we're introduced immediately uh, in the story to the Lord or Yahweh. That's what it means when you see the word Lord in, in caps. This is his covenant name. He is the covenant Lord of the people of Israel. And he speaks to one who has been appointed by him to declare his purposes to his people. And so we're given a hint that what follows has to do with God's redeeming work in the world and through his people. Because this is the Lord who is speaking. He's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And this goes back even further to the beginning. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden... But we are given that precious promise that God will one day send a Savior through the seed of the woman who will reverse the fall and deal with our sin problem once and for all. God also graciously saved and called Abraham, a descendant of Adam, and revealed to him that he was going to save the nations through his offspring. And so the people of Israel, this nation, was brought into existence for this very purpose— to be a means by which God would save the nations and fill the earth with His glory. But the people of Israel constantly proved themselves to be a rebellious and faithless people. Jonah was called to be a prophet to these people. Jonah himself being an Israelite. Now in Jonah's time, the kingdom was divided, split in two as a consequence of their sin. Uh, There was a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. And the kings who ruled Israel, with the exception of of a few, were horrible kings. They were terrible. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And we know that Jonah's ministry was to King Jeroboam II. Uh, We know this because we see it in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 to 28. And just to give you a little bit of the landscape, Israel had a, a troublesome neighbor at that time, the kingdom of Assyria. They were a perpetual thorn in the flesh for the Israelites. Not only were they legendary for their brutality and cruelty, but they saw Israel as a nation that stood in their way as they sought to dominate West Asia. But during Jeroboam's reign, the Assyrians became busy with other nations, sorting out wars and and skirmishes, even suffering uh, epidemics and famines. And that meant that they left Israel alone. For that time. And so during that time, Israel enjoyed peace and prosperity for almost 40 years. But under Jeroboam's reign, the people became morally bankrupt. They were idolatrous and evil. And yet, despite the wickedness of the king and the people, God told Jeroboam through Jonah to expand the borders of Israel to how it was during Solomon's reign. Think about that. God showed incredible mercy, incredible mercy towards his people, and he allowed them to prosper despite their wickedness. And so this was the the political and, and cultural climate during the time of Jonah. Now, we don't know much about Jonah except his name, which means dove. He is the son of Amittai, we're told, a name which means truth or faithfulness. We're also told in in 2 Kings that Jonah is from Gath-Hefer. It's a little town belonging to the tribe of Zebulun. You may not be familiar uh, with that name, Gath-Hefer, but you will certainly be familiar with the the region. Gath-Hefer is in Galilee. And so we see that the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh, comes to this Galilean prophet. But he is told not to speak to Israel, but to go somewhere else. He's given this surprising assignment. Look at verse 2 in your Bibles. God says, 
Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Nineveh was a city in Assyria. Assyria was a very important city. God calls it that great city. And God tells Jonah to get up, arise, and call out against the sins of Nineveh. You see, God was going to destroy Nineveh if they did not turn from their wicked ways. And he was commissioning his servant Jonah to go and preach a word of judgment. It was also a word of mercy if they repented. Now, there were two important things to know, two important things for you to know here. One, remember the history. The Israelites hated the Assyrians. They were bitter enemies. Jonah was being called not to preach to Israel, who were certainly in need of preaching themselves. Remember, they were living wicked lives. But he was called to preach to their enemies, to these Gentile dogs, as they would have called them. So this was highly irregular, being sent outside Israel's borders. But here's the, here's the other twist in the story. The prophet Amos, who was Jonah's contemporary, was also prophesying during the same time, during Jeroboam's time. And, and Amos's word to the people of Israel was this. He said, don't think God's pleased with you just because you're enjoying this time of prosperity. If you don't repent of your idolatry and treachery, God is going to send the Assyrians to destroy you and carry you off into exile. We'll see that in, in Amos 6.14. And so this is the context in which Yahweh's word comes to Jonah. How do you think Jonah is going to respond? Well, surely he's a prophet. Surely he's going to do what is right. I mean, he's going to remember, right, that this is why Israel exists in the first place, to be a blessing to the nations. He's going to remember those promises made to the patriarchs. He's going to believe in those promises He's going to be grateful for God's mercy to Israel. He's going to walk in the obedience of faith to to preach repentance to these Gentiles who don't know the Lord. That's not what Jonah does. Look at verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah shows absolutely no desire to obey the Lord. God tells him to go to Nineveh, and he decides to pack up and go west to Tarshish. He flees from the presence of the Lord, says the writer. Now, Jonah knows that the Lord is everywhere. He's a prophet. He's a theologian. He he knew the Psalms well, because if you look at chapter 2, and if you look at his prayer there, it's saturated with language from the Psalms. He knew that the Lord was present everywhere. Psalm 139, verse 7 to 8 says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. So what's Jonah up to? What does it mean here to flee from the presence of the Lord? Literally from before the face of Yahweh. Well, it means to escape God's revelation, His Word. You see, God's presence here is associated with His prophetic word to Jonah. Jonah defies the Lord. He refuses to serve Him in obedience. And just like Adam and Eve hid from the Lord's presence in their disobedience, you remember that in Genesis 3.8? Jonah was saying, I would rather fall out of fellowship with you than obey your word. Think about that. He was choosing exile over obedience. Look at verse 3 again. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. How convenient. Friends, did you notice how favorable the circumstances are for Jonah to flee, to run away. 
Friends, this teaches us a very important lesson. Don't rely on your circumstances to direct your ways when you have rejected the clear teaching of God's Word. If Scripture tells you, do not forsake the gathering with the saints so that you can encourage one another, so that you can provoke one another to love and good deeds, that's Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, and you choose to disobey that command, don't be surprised if you find the conditions favorable for you to do other things. Of course the circumstances are going to be conducive to disobedience. The circumstances are always going to be conducive to disobedience. We live in a fallen world. And the world and our flesh and the devil will conspire against us when we want to trust and obey His Word. No, God's people are called to keep in step with the Spirit and abide in God's Word. Similarly, you might find a great job with a great pay. But if that job will not permit you to live the Christian life as God intends for you and outlines for you in His Word, then brother, that job may be taking you away from a joyful communion with the Lord and His people. You know, Charles Spurgeon once told the story of his school friend who had a very short temper. And when this friend would get angry and lose his temper, he'd always throw things at people. Spurgeon said that, he wa- that what surprised him was not that his friend sinned or got angry or even how easily he got angry. What surprised Spurgeon was how in his anger his hand would always find something to throw. See, Jonah disobeys God and what does he find? Open doors. Here's a ship, ready and waiting, enough money in his bank account, and yet he is walking in rank disobedience. Friends, God speaks to us clearly in Scripture. Look to Scripture. Apply wisdom from Scripture. Lean on providence in your obedience, not in your disobedience. Notice how the writer uses that phrase, going down. Jonah goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the ship. In verse 5, he goes down into the inner part of the ship. It's as though the writer is telling us that everything goes downhill from here for Jonah. This descent into chaos begins when you do not heed God's word. And you won't even realize it. Friends, sometimes when the Lord decides to discipline you, he might just let you have what you're chasing after. And he might use those very things to work against you. When you read the Old Testament, the word going down conjures up pictures of going down to the grave in Sheol. And yet we see that Jonah is determined to go down, to disobey God even at a great cost. We're told that he goes down to the nearest port, Joppa, finds a ship, pays the fare. When you read the book of 1 Kings, of how Solomon acquired gold and other precious commodities from from Tarshish. We are told that it would take several months for the ships to get there. And so this, this money, this fare would have been a hefty price. And yet it was a price that Jonah was willing to pay in order to get his way. Maybe some of you have been there. Willing to pay any price to get your way. At what cost? Friends, money is a great blessing from the Lord. But we are to use it for His kingdom purposes. To glorify God and not to aid our sinful choices. Some of us this morning may need to take stock of whether we are using our resources to obey the Lord, to grow in greater faithfulness, to further the great commission, or whether we are using our resources to create opportunities for the flesh. What was driving Jonah's disobedience? What sinful desires of his were conflicting with the Lord's commands? Well, the writer doesn't tell us until we get to chapter 4, verse 2. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. Jonah did not want to preach to the Ninevites because he really knew God. 
He knew God was a merciful God and that he would spare the Ninevites through his preaching. That's why he didn't want to go. He didn't want to go to those very people who could one day become a threat to the Israelites. And so Jonah runs. He doesn't like God's plan. Friends, some of us might be helped this morning by this simple truth. God knows better than you. He just does. He is God. His wisdom is infinite. He knows better than you. So trust in Him. Even though you cannot figure out how He's going to work everything out, trust in Him. Isn't that the obedience of faith? Jonah runs. But what does the Lord say about prophets who run, who disobey Him, particularly those who do not warn others about the Lord's coming judgment? Well, listen to these words that the Lord tells the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 8 and 9. Ezekiel 33, verse 8. If I, that's God, say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. You remember what Paul said in Acts 20, verses 26 to 27, speaking to the Ephesian elders? What does he say? He says, I have not stopped from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I am innocent of the blood of all of you. I've told you the gospel. You will now have to give an account for it yourself. Ezekiel 33 verse 9, but if you warn the wicked to turn from his way and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. But Jonah seems hell-bent on doing the opposite, doesn't he? He's effectively saying, let their blood be on my hands. I don't care. You can see that Jonah is provoking God's judgment on himself here. But here's the most shocking thing. Instead of consuming Jonah by his wrath, God shows mercy to his sinning prophet by working against him and not allowing him to continue down this destructive path. His mercy towards Jonah is a severe mercy. It's it's mercy in that God doesn't kill him. And it's severe in this sense that it will discipline him. Friends, this is how we ought to think about God's discipline. God disciplines his children because he loves them. That's Hebrews 12, 6. He disciplines us for our holiness so that we can see our sin and see the consequences of our sin and marvel at his mercy and patience so that we can sing what patience would wait as we constantly roam. What father so tender is calling us home. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. So don't grow weary of the Lord's discipline. When he shows you your sin, go to him, run to him, turn to Christ. But Jonah seems to be running in the opposite direction. This is how the Lord responds to Jonah's disobedience. Look at verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. The Lord literally throws a storm. He hurls it like a warrior throwing a spear at his target. The prophet Jeremiah describes the Lord's anger as a mighty storm. Jeremiah 23, verse 20. And so this storm, this thing comes out of nowhere. There's no buildup. It just hits them out of the blue. By the way, there's there's going to be a lot of hurling in the story. The Lord hurls a a great wind. The sailors start hurling excess cargo. And finally they hurl Jonah, the the real baggage that shouldn't be on that ship. The The storm is so bad that even these seasoned sailors start panicking. Because the structural integrity of the, the ship starts to give way. Now, these mariners or sailors were were probably 
Phoenicians who were carrying cargo from Tarshish to Joppa and back. And so in, in their fear, they start doing the only two things that make sense to them. One, jettison the cargo to keep the ship afloat and then start calling on their gods. Look at verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his god. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship onto the sea to lighten it for them. But amidst all that frenzy, there was only one passenger who was oblivious to what was happening. We're told, look at the text, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Friends, you can be walking in disobedience to God's word and be at absolute peace with yourself. Do you see that? Jonah's at peace with himself. Brothers and sisters, don't look to your heart. Don't look to your feelings as a guide when you have the clear teaching of Scripture. Look to the counsel of the Word. Look to the counsel of other mature believers when you're faced with a tough decision. Go to the elders and and, and talk to them about it. Go to Joey. Go to Doug. Go to Scott. If Scott's not available, I hear you have a spare Scott. <laughs> and, and, look through the, and look through the Word together. And the Spirit will help you live wisely. See, this is God's design for His church. Jonah is living unwisely. And, and spiritually, he's in a very bad place. But he seems to be happy about it. He's at rest you know, the men go down into the hole to check, you know, what boxes, what cargo can we get rid of, and they hear loud snoring. And so they come up to the captain, and they say, boss, you got to come and see this. You remember that guy we picked up at Joppa? He's fast asleep. I've never seen anything more ridiculous. Come and see. Look at verse 6. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, O sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Friends, God in his wisdom may choose unbelievers to rudely awaken us from our spiritual stupor. Did you see the mercy of God in the words of the captain? Look at the text. Jonah is rudely awakened to these words. Look at verse 6. Arise, call out. Those were the very words that he heard from God. In verse 1. Now he hears it from the captain. You see the Lord is reminding his disobedient prophet of his commission again. And he's also being reminded of how his sin will affect others. Jonah has put the lives of these sailors at risk. And yet he has no answer. He doesn't seem to care. God's believing Jewish prophet is being asked by an unbeliever to pray. Pray to your God. See, that's how low Jonah has sunk spiritually. He doesn't repent. He doesn't call out to God in prayer. Nor does he seek God's word. In fact, the irony of all of this is that the sailors begin to seek out a divine answer to their problem. Look at verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. Now, these guys may be pagan, but they somehow get the nagging sense that some god somewhere is angry at someone on the ship. And so they cast lots. And the lot fell on, surprise, surprise, Jonah. And so you can almost imagine this this comical scene. The music stops, and all heads turn towards Jonah. And the questioning begins. Look at verse 8. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? The reason they ask all these questions is that they hope to find two things. One, which God does he worship? All those background questions will reveal that. And then secondly, what have you done to provoke such a disaster? Jonah is cornered now, and so he must give an answer. Look at verses 9 to 10. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. Now that's a dead giveaway. 
He is of the people of Abraham who worships Yahweh. This is the God who brought down plagues upon Egypt. Everyone had heard about that. He brought his people through the Red Sea. He was a worshiper of Yahweh. But the next thing that he says is astonishing. Look at the text. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. Yeah, right. See, Jonah's dishonesty is is simply stunning. This is Jonah pulling out his, his prophet's business card. And he's making an empty confession. If he feared the Lord, then he would have obeyed his directives. He would have kept his word instead of relying on his own desires and his own wisdom. Friends, I fear that some of you, even this morning, may be like Jonah. Proudly calling yourselves Christians. People who fear the Lord but are living, perhaps, in unrepentant sin. Brothers and sisters, don't let your life be inconsistent with your confession. Remember that the Lord through His Spirit can empower you to live according to His Word and for His glory. If you confess your sin, seek out help from your brothers and sisters and turn to the Lord. Turn to Christ, the God who made the universe out of nothing and who raised Jesus from the dead and created faith in you when there was no faith. God who is able, that God, is able to transform you into one who loves his word and desires to walk in it for his glory and his purposes. But notice how Jonah's confession is directed specifically at these pagan sailors. These pagan sailors would have believed that the god Baal was the god of heaven. And Jonah says, no, it's Yahweh who's the god of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Verse 10, then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And this brings us to our second point. Let's look at the sailors' response now. Jonah tells them everything. He tells them about the word that he received from the Lord. He tells them how he was fleeing from the the Lord. And the sailors are not pleased to hear all of this. In fact, they're morally indignant and terrified, exceedingly fearful at the prospect of Yahweh's wrath. Think about that. These unbelieving sailors were fearful of the Lord's wrath, while Jonah was quite comfortable in his sin. Comfortable enough to sleep well in the midst of a storm. You see, this was not the sleep of quiet trust in the Lord. This was the sleep of arrogance. That phrase, what is this that you have done, is the same phrase that God says to Eve after she rebels against God's word. These men are mortified at what Jonah had done. They say, wait, are you telling me that your God is Yahweh? Are you telling me that he is not like our gods who's, who, who specialize over certain things in certain areas? Are you telling me that he is sovereign over the land and the seas and your bright idea to run away from him is to get on the sea which he controls and on our ship? This like sounds like a, a special variety of stupid, don't you think? To think you can run from the one who controls the heavens and the seas. But we do this all the time, don't we? We confess that God is omniscient. He knows all. He sees all. And then we pretend to engage in sin thinking that I don't think anyone's looking. Do you see what's happening? All of a sudden, these Gentiles seem to have a better theology than Jonah. And they recognize that something needs to be done with regards to Jonah if the Lord is going to relent from his holy wrath. And so they say to him, look at verse 11. What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Somehow they recognize that something needs to be done. Some sort of punishment or discipline is in order for Jonah. And they see themselves as God's agents. 
We must do to you, they ask. What, what, what must we do to you, they say. And the reason they're asking that question is because the storm is growing worse. What must we do to you? To which Jonah replies, verse 12, look at verse 12. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will, be quiet, will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Again, think about Jonah's idea. Think about what the sailors would have thought. Wait, you want us to throw you into the, the sea? In the storm? Kill you? And be responsible for your death? And Jonah says, yes, that's, that's, the, that's the plan. And the men say, no, thank you, that's a dumb idea. Let's try something else. Look at verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Jonah's solution is very interesting, isn't it? He doesn't pray. He doesn't get on his knees and repent. He doesn't say, Lord, please forgive me. I don't know what I was thinking. I was so foolish. You alone are sovereign. You can extend your mercy to whoever you want, even the Ninevites. You can spare them through my preaching. And if you have determined to punish your people, Israel, through the Assyrians later, so be it. You can do that, Lord, because we deserve it. We deserve it. We have sinned against you. We have been a faithless people, and I have been a faithless servant. But Jonah says nothing of that sort. Jonah is still determined to thwart God's plan. Here's what he thinks. How is God going to spare those disgusting Ninevites if there's not going to be a preacher? I would rather die than see God extend his mercy to them. You'll see that attitude once again in chapter 4. Jonah repeats those same words, I would rather die. You see, if Jonah was genuinely concerned about the ship's crew, he could have repented. Jonah doesn't want that. He wants to avoid his divine calling through death. But God puts Jonah through this storm to teach him a very important lesson, a lesson that even you and I need to learn. And that's, this is the lesson. You cannot manipulate God. You cannot manipulate his judgment, and you certainly cannot manipulate his mercy. When the Apostle Paul speaks about God's sovereign mercy in the salvation of sinners, he writes, for God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's Romans 9, 15 and 16. See, Jonah doesn't get to decide whether it's a good idea or not for God to spare the Ninevites. That's God's prerogative. He's the one who sees the big picture. And so I hope you can see what Jonah is really up to. You know, if God wanted Jonah's death, he could have done it a long time ago. And if Jonah's death is what God wanted, why not jump overboard yourself? Why involve the participation why involve these sailors? See, Jonah in his stubbornness and foolishness was not only refusing to preach to the Ninevites, endangering them, he was also implicating these Gentile sailors in his death. You see how irrational sin can be? Jonah is only getting worse, spiritually speaking. See, the, the wind may look like it's out of control. The sea may look like it's out of control, but the only one who's out of control is Jonah. God was in perfect control of that storm. The wind and the water were obeying his every command. The only one who was disobeying him was Jonah. And so these sailors try one last desperate attempt to get to land, but they can't. And so they realize that if this is what God's prophet wants, even though it sounds like a terrible idea to us, we better do it. But even then, their consciences are, are troubled by the solution. And so they Guess what? They pray to Yahweh. Imagine that. The one who should be praying isn't. These Gentiles start praying to the Lord. Look at verse 14. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Don't kill us because of his disobedience. And lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. See, they recognize that all of this is from Yahweh, who is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. But they are profoundly troubled by Jonah's request. 
Lord, if your prophet wants us to throw him to his death, this is what you want. Don't hold us accountable for his death. Now, keep in mind, these are pagans. They were, only, they, they were only used to praying to their Canaanite and Mesopotamian gods. And so they don't know Yahweh. They think he might be fickle. He's asking us to do something. I'm not sure about this. He might just turn around and punish us, us hold us responsible for Jonah's murder. And so they plead with him, let not his blood be on our hands. Verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Jonah asked for that. He asked for that. But even as he asked to be hurled, he was speaking better than he knew. You see, the Holy Spirit tells us that Jonah was hurled because Jonah has become like the cargo, a useless vessel. And he's disciplined for his rebellion. But, get this, he's disciplined at the hands of the Gentiles. Ironic, isn't it? You see, one of the themes of the Old Testament is that the Lord uses Gentile nations to discipline his sinning people, Israel. That's what Amos was talking about. God would later use the Assyrians just as Amos had prophesied. prophesied. He would would use the Assyrians to, to judge Israel and send them into exile. You see, Jonah liked the idea of of God being merciful to Israel despite their sin. He didn't like the idea of God being merciful to the Gentiles despite their sin. Some of us are like that, aren't we? Or we like the idea of God being patient with us. Compassionate to us. Merciful to us. But maybe he needs to speed up on his punishment, judgment with those people. Those terrible people. Patient with me, yes. See, Jonah couldn't conceive how God might use the Gentiles to punish his chosen people. And yet, Jonah couldn't see that this was exactly what God was doing to him. To him. So they hurled Jonah into the sea and immediately the storm ceased. But once the terror of the storm was gone, the sailors were struck with a greater fear. A fear for Yahweh, the Lord of the storm. Look at verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to Yahweh. Imagine that. As a result of this incident, these Gentile sailors begin to to worship Yahweh. God gets glory for himself despite the disobedience of his prophet. Jonah, who was so opposed to his divine commission to to preach to the Gentiles, ends up being an instrument of God's mercy to the Gentiles anyway. The point is this. Whatever you do, God's going to win. God's going to win. He does, as the sailors themselves confessed, he does all that pleases him. But think about what this meant to these Gentile sailors. All that's happened. I mean, what story would they, would they tell their families back home? What did this mean to them? As far as they could tell, the death of this one Galilean man was the means of satisfying the Lord's wrath and it saved them from perishing. Does that story sound familiar to you? One Galilean man being sacrificed to satisfy God's wrath to save the Gentiles from perishing. His judgment meant their deliverance. You see, Jonah had become the means through which Yahweh saved them from perishing. But there was another way in which God answered the sailor's prayer. We read in verse 17 that God appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah... And preserve his life. And that means his blood was not on their hands. He was alive. God had judged his runaway prophet through the storm. And by casting him down into the belly of this great fish, God saved him. Make no mistake. Jonah experienced judgment. But he also experienced deliverance. Not because he deserved it. He experienced deliverance. Not apart from judgment, but through judgment. 
God preserved his life through that fish. God was teaching Jonah and Israel a very important lesson. See, if God could be merciful to Israel who did not deserve his mercy, then he could certainly be merciful to the Ninevites who also did not deserve his mercy. Jonah needed to learn that everything God did and everything God does is purposeful. Everything that God commands is purposeful. It serves his redemptive purposes and it's for his glory. Friends, you don't know. You don't know what God is accomplishing through your everyday ordinary obedience. Moms with young kids, all those little things that you do at home in obedience to the Lord. Let me tell you, take the long view. You don't know what God is accomplishing through everyday mundane obedience. Trust in him. Obey him. You know, eventually we know that Jonah preached in Nineveh and a generation of Ninevites were spared destruction only to be used later as agents of wrath against Israel herself. And then Nineveh herself is judged by God's years later. You can read about that in the book of Nahum. Friends, this incident was recorded to teach the people of Israel why they existed. They were to be the means by which Abraham's blessing would come to the nations. God was telling his servant Jonah to proclaim a message of repentance and deliverance to a Gentile nation, but he refused to do so. See, part of the tragedy of Israel's persistent faithlessness and idolatry over many generations was their ethnocentrism. They turned their focus inward rather than spreading divine blessing to the nations around them. And they went from bad to worse. But through it all, God promised them that because of his steadfast love and mercy, he would one day restore his people. God himself would come and save his people. And despite our sinfulness, Yahweh, the Lord of the storm himself came into our sinful world in the person of his son, Jesus to fulfill the promise that through Abraham's offspring, God's blessing would come to the nations. And while the deliverance that these Gentile sailors and the Ninevites experienced was temporal, God worked eternal salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. Like Jonah, Jesus too was sent by his father to, to preach a message. And he obeyed the father's will perfectly, even to death, death on the cross. And we read in the gospel of Mark, we hear about this story one day that, that Jesus was with his disciples on a boat. Just like Jonah was on a boat. In the Sea of Galilee and a great windstorm arose. And Mark tells us that the waves were breaking into the boat, boat and the disciples were afraid. But they were also confused because Jesus was fast asleep. And they came to him and woke him saying, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? How ironic to ask the very one who had come to save them from perishing. And Mark tells us in Mark 4.39 that Jesus got up, rebuked the wind and the sea, saying, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You see, his disciples knew that only Yahweh was the Lord of the storm. And here was one in the flesh who was the Lord of the storm himself come to save his people. Here was one far greater than Jonah and his death saves sinners from perishing. You see, Jonah wanted to be thrown in to thwart God's plan, but Jesus went to the cross and died in the place of rebellious sinners to fulfill God's plan. He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And it pleased the Father, we are told, to bruise the Son and to lay upon Him the iniquities of us all. Jesus, Jesus compares Himself to Jonah, doesn't He? He compares Himself to Jonah's ministry. Like Jonah, who was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, Jesus too was in the grave, but He rose from the dead. He died not being disciplined for His sins, for He was sinless, Oh, he was punished for hours. Unlike Jonah, who didn't care that the Ninevites would perish, Jesus bore our sins and he took God's judgment on himself so that we would not perish but have eternal salvation. 
You see, his mercy is greater than our sins. And friends, if you don't know Jesus, if you have not tasted of his goodness and mercy, let me plead with you this morning. Repent of your sins and put your trust in Jesus. And surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. But if you reject Christ, you will bear your own iniquities. You will face God's wrath on the day of judgment. Let me tell you this. You can run, but you can't hide. You will stand before him. You need Jesus, the Lord of the storm, to speak that word of peace or else you, are, you will perish. And if you're a Christian, oh, rejoice. Jesus' work has brought us into God's presence and we have communion with him through his spirit. We've been justified by faith in Christ alone and we need not fear God's wrath, but we get to worship him. Worship him with fear and trembling because our God is a consuming fire. Oh, beloved, let's not grieve the Holy Spirit and bring displeasure to our Father through our disobedience. Let's not begrudge his mercy, but kill our sin. Fight the good fight of faith. Pursue ordinary obedience and rejoice that he is so patient with us. Even as we partake of the Lord's Supper together, let's renew our allegiance to our King who commissions his church upon his authority and promises his presence as we labor together in the Lord. Let his word, let his glorious cause grip and engage our hearts and let us arise and proclaim his excellencies in the power of the Spirit. Let's pray together. Lord, we confess that so often we are just like Jonah. Instead of walking in faith and joyful obedience, we look to our circumstances, we look to people, we look to our own culture and we agonize over what might be acceptable, what might be practical, what our family members will think. Sometimes we needlessly worry about the outcomes. Well, what will happen if I obey God and do this? Instead of recognizing and remembering that we are your beloved children loved in Christ, forgiven, kept by your power for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. Oh Lord, forgive us for our unbelief. Open our eyes to see that you are the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth and that you do everything for your good pleasure and for our eternal good. Help us crush our arrogance that we might be your humble servants and useful instruments both in this body and in the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.